safety is the freedom from unacceptable risk. So in aerospace, they attempt to identify um, risks, um, and actually they use a word called mishap. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the MedTech Podcast. You join me, your host, Karadeep Singh Badwell. After this episode, I have Bijan Ilahi, author, teacher, and independent consultant for medical device risk management. Bijan's career began in aerospace in 1985, where he played a crucial role in ensuring safety within NASA and overseeing space systems. However, it was a fateful encounter at a risk management conference in 1991 that sparked his interest in the field of medical devices. When someone sought his advice on this topic, it paved the way for his transition into the realm of medical devices. Since then, Bijan has become a respected figure, sharing his knowledge and expertise through lectures at numerous universities. He also has provided valuable guidance to multiple medical device companies on the intricacies of risk management. And as a testament to his deep understanding of the subject, he has authored two comprehensive books on this topic. In this episode, he delves into the intriguing world of risk management, drawing parallels between aerospace and medical devices. With years of experience as an advisor, he unveils the common misconceptions surrounding this crucial topic. He sheds light on his earlier days when risk management lacked standardized frameworks and how he navigated throughout that landscape. And above all, he shares his unwavering passion for transforming uncommon knowledge into something accessible and widespread. Welcome, Rishal Bijan. How are you today? Hello. Good. Good to be here. Great having you on. So you started your career in aerospace prior to getting into medical devices. How exactly did you go about making that transition? Well, it was kind of an accident. Uh, I was giving a lecture uh, at a conference uh, uh, when I was in aerospace. And uh, at the end of my lecture, somebody from the medical device industry approached me and said that they needed some help because uh, aerospace has had about a 40-year head start on system safety. And um, so I said, okay, I'll give you some advice. And so that they they liked it. They, they told their friends that the friends came to me and gradually just it became a bigger and bigger part of my work. And, and eventually one of the companies said, hey, could you just come work for us full-time? And that's how I ended up going from aerospace to uh, medical device industry. So with your experience in risk management for both aerospace and medical devices, what do you think are the key differences between the two fields in terms of management risk? Uh, in aerospace, they are governed by a standard is uh, called 882, military standard 882, which is currently in revision E. And uh, they define safety as freedom from conditions that can cause death, injury, occupational illness, damage or loss of equipment or property damage and to the environment too. So the, uh, there's a diff- that's a different definition that we have uh, in med- medical and device industry, which is safety is the freedom from unacceptable risk. So in aerospace, they attempt to identify um, risks um, and actually they use a word called mishap which is roughly equivalent of what we call harm in medical device industry. So they aim to, their aim is to identify uh, things that could lead to mishaps and create um, events that are undesirable and uh, reduce the risk. 
they, um, if the risk is reduced to an acceptable level, then that's a go and we can build a system. In the medical device industry, uh, we do all of that, but in addition, we manage the risk. And by management, uh, what I mean is that we evaluate whether the benefits of that risk outweigh the risks. The benefits of a device outweigh its risks. Uh, they don't do that in aerospace. Uh, so uh, that's, I think, the, the main difference between aerospace risk management and medical device risk management is that uh, in addition to reducing risks uh, to uh, as low as possible, we also balance the benefits of our devices against the risks, whereas in aerospace, they don't do that. So in addition to your professional work within medical devices, you also teach people about medical device risk management. How exactly did you get into teaching? And also throughout your teaching, what are the common misconceptions that you find your students often have about risk management for medical devices? Yeah, uh, teaching kind of, again, started uh, by accident. Uh, uh, um, my core competency uh, has been safety risk management uh, for a long time, for maybe 35, 40 years now. Um, even since the aerospace days. Uh, so when I came to medical device industry, um, I always was in charge of safety risk management. Uh, even this is way before even ISO 14971 was invented or released. Um, so many times my colleagues would ask me for advice and eventually they asked me to just teach them some internal courses. Um, and then um, I one occasion, uh, one of my interns who was getting her PhD, she, uh, I, I attended her graduation and her professor was asking me if I would consider teaching in the university. So I started teaching in the university and it kind of kept getting bigger and bigger. And now I don't do medical device development anymore. I, all, all I do is uh, teaching and advising uh, product developers. Um, as far as misconceptions, uh, um, because I teach a broad range of people from people who have uh, no knowledge of safety risk management to experts. Um, the kinds of things that I see, um, sometimes people think that it's possible to make a device that will not cause any harm. In other words, a risk-free device. Uh, and in reality, that's not possible. Uh, another uh, misconception that I have seen is uh, people think doing an FMEA or failure modes and effects analysis is sufficient for risk management, which again is not true. Um, and um, another thing that I have observed is uh, that a lot of times uh, engineers, you know, they're conservative type of people and they tend to operate out of fear, uh, meaning that they are so worried about something going wrong that they tend to over engineer and uh, this is both wasteful in terms of resources and time and also could even limit access to medical devices to people who want them because it just delays or maybe even prevents release of certain devices. So part of what I have been teaching uh, is to, to be reasonable and not to be just operating out of fear, but rather operate out of a basis of knowledge. So in addition to your teachings, you also wrote uh, two books, uh, Safety Risk Management for Medical Devices. Uh, when going through that book, is there a section where you discuss how to leverage uh, risk management in an efficient way to avoid field safety corrective actions and to get regulatory approval faster? Can you yeah. perhaps share some practical tips with the audience on how to do this effectively? Yeah, sure. Um, so 
one of the things we have to consider is that when we are trying to release a medical device, uh, we need to get it approved by a regulatory body. Uh, essentially, we need to persuade them that our device is worthy of being approved. Uh, and a piece of advice I can offer is just to put yourself in the place of the regulatory reviewer. What do they need to feel comfortable in approving your device? Um, first and foremost, uh, that your product is acceptably safe and it will likely meet its intended purpose and its benefits outweigh the risks. So the things that I will talk about now is uh, because I'm a risk management expert and uh, I'm not going to talk about the benefits right now. I'm just going to focus on the risks. Uh, first thing I would uh, advise people is to ensure that you are compliant with ISO 14971. Uh, that's just you know pretty simple because you know what the standard asks for and just ensure that you, you're compliant. Um, another point is to uh, use good traceability analysis uh, to make it easy for a reviewer to find the answers to their questions. Uh, if you have an easy to understand and read risk management report, it goes a long ways in getting your submission approved faster. Um, and then make sure your benefit risk analysis is based on persuasive arguments. Uh, you have used sound statistical methods to establish your benefits. Um, and uh, your literature search is broad and has uh, good analysis of the state of the art. Uh, you have uh, used qualified subject matter experts and stakeholders in supporting your claims. Uh, these are the things that can help you get faster approvals. Um, and to avoid field safety corrective actions, well, naturally, first thing you need to do is do a good job of your pre-market risk management, uh, because then you are less likely to miss hazards and um, have potential corrective actions. Um, you would also be less likely to underestimate risks, and you're more likely uh, to be able to identify reasonably foreseeable misuse of your device, which is a uh, uh, important because uh, if something happens uh, that you had not anticipated, that will come back to you in the form of perhaps a field corrective action. Um, and of course, post-market surveillance is another area that both uh, ISO 14971 requires that, uh, so, so does the uh, MDR, but also it's really good practice because it help, could help you detect trends that could indicate even though things are going okay for now, maybe uh, they're indicating that you're going toward some adverse events in the near future, and you can take actions to, to prevent them from happening. So in terms of medical device risks, what would you say is one of those risks that companies perhaps don't think of at the time of developing their medical devices? Well, it depends on device by device. Um, um, so it's really hard to say what risk because different devices have different kinds of risks uh, that maybe people could uh, not anticipate. But maybe if I, I could answer your question in a categorical way, um, I think um, missing hazards would be something that could happen to anyone. Um, there are a lot of examples in the field about companies that uh, have tried to do a good job and they've done as good a job as they could. And then some adverse event happens in the field that creates an unusually large impact on the company. Um, I mean, right now we know about Philips ventilators. Um, 
Well, it was a very simple thing that went wrong with their ventilators, uh, CPAP and BiPAP machines. Um, uh, uh, sound insulation degrades and could uh, create uh, adverse con consequences on their patients. Well, if they knew it, they wouldn't have let, released the product with the potential to harm people, but they, they had missed that hazard. And this could happen to anyone. Um, so I think categorically answering your question, I would say just missing hazards is a, is a, is a risk to companies and also to patients. So you mentioned when we were talking offline that when you started in the medical device industry, uh, the ISO 14971 standard didn't really exist. So looking back at that, what do you think were some of the key challenges that you faced in implementing risk management without a standardized framework? Yeah. Um, well, in those days before ISO 14971 came to existence, we didn't know what would be sufficient to satisfy a regulatory reviewer. Um, ISO 14971 created a common ground where manufacturers could predict that if they conform to the standard, then they have met the safety and efficacy requirements that the regulators look for. So uh, before 14971, um, people just did what they thought would be a good, good thing to do. And most manufacturers did failure modes and effects analysis, and they thought that that was enough. Uh, well, today we know that that's only part of the answer and we need to do more. Um, surprisingly, even today, some manufacturers still think that an FMA is all we need to do and that's it. Um, another thing that uh, has changed is that in those days, post-market surveillance was a lot less organized and less formal, but today it's a lot more um, organized. Um, it's, it's better. So I think uh, all in all, the... the offer of ISO 14971 to the market has really helped uh, all around, both the manufacturers and the regulators, and of course, naturally, the patients benefit from that. So what exactly is the process like where you recognize that there's a need for a standard? How do you go about bringing this up? Who are the people that you would contact and what does that process look like? So when you saw 14971 coming to market, how exactly did that process work? Well, initially, you mean how, how was ISO 14971 created? Effectively, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, around in 1998, the, there was a group of about 112 countries that came together to, to create a standardized way of doing medical device risk management. And uh, they created a working group, uh, ISO TC210, that uh, worked on creating this standard. Um, and then later on, they uh, joined forces with the group that was producing IEC 60601-130 edition, and they created a joint working group one. Uh, it's, it just is a lot of work, a lot of uh, negotiation, discussions uh, among a lot of uh, subject matter experts, and it takes years to uh, create a standard. Um, if we look at the time span between the the last two standards where 2007 was the second revision of the standard and 2019 was the next time. So it took 12 years to revise the standard. You can see how much work goes into it. When a standard doesn't exist for something like risk management, how exactly did the regulators go about assessing this? Is this something that every regulator around the world had their own process for? So how does it work when a standard doesn't exist? Oh, before before ISO 14971. You know, I can't really exactly answer that question because uh, I was not a regulator, uh, but I can surmise that what happened is that 
each regulator uh, from well, each person actually, each reviewer from each different regula regulatory agency uh, would exercise their common sense and their uh, sense of what would be uh, a best practice. As I said, most people uh, thought failure modes and effects analysis is the way to go and that's sufficient. And um, so it was uh, inconsistent. I mean, even today with the standard, we can't say there's 100% consistency among the various reviewers and various regulatory agencies, but it's a lot better. But uh, back before the standard, um, each reviewer would have to be persuaded that you've uh, done a good job of analyzing your risks and reducing your risks and that the device is sufficiently safe and effective to be released. So the terms that you were using before, risk, hazard analysis, what do these mean? And can you perhaps provide examples of what they are? Today, um, well, yeah, um, hazard analysis is the process of identifying your hazards, estimating their risks. Uh, and then uh, the next thing you do is you evaluate those risks based on some risk acceptance criteria that uh, currently the manufacturers are re required to identif identify. So uh, the standard doesn't tell you what the acceptable risk limits are. Um, so that's the uh, risk analysis. And uh, the next thing that you do is to try to reduce those risks by uh, doing risk uh, controls, which are measures you take to reduce the risks uh, as much as uh, well, different approaches as, as far as possible, according to EU MDR, or there are other approaches to reduce the risks. Uh, and then uh, you evaluate, evaluate those risks. Now, are they uh, acceptable? Um, and if, if they become acceptable, then you have to also do an overall residual risk evaluation to see that uh, the overall medical device risk is acceptable. And also you need to show that the benefits of your medical device outweigh the risks of that device. So this is kind of a nutshell, the approach for doing risk management for medical devices. So with the new advancements in technology, what new challenges are you seeing in emerging medical devices out there, such as software medical devices? And yeah. how can companies best prepare for these challenges? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, uh, the world is changing and technology is advancing. Uh, of course, software, as you touched on it, is the a big one. Uh, more and more medical device companies are using software to deliver better performance and outcomes for their patients. And then we also have you know, another type of medical device, uh, also known as SAMD, uh, software as a medical device, which uh, there is no hardware. All it is is software, and those are also proliferating. Uh, uh, another area is um, cybersecurity, uh, which uh, didn't used to be a threat, but uh, over the past decade or so, maybe uh, they have been, uh, it's been growing as intruders are becoming more sophisticated and uh, many of the medical devices that are in the market today were designed developed decades ago when cybersecurity was not an issue. So um, not only are new devices are vulnerable, but the older devices are even more vulnerable to cybersecurity uh, breaches. Um, AI is also another area that's uh, slowly, grow slowly growing in the medical technology area. Um, uh, again, it's intended to improve uh, performance of medical devices and deliver more benefit to the customers to the patients uh, but AI itself is a complex area and risk management of that is not really uh, well understood yet. Um, other areas of advancements are robotics uh, which are now pretty common um, and we also have uh, new materials that are always being 
uh, used, invented, discovered uh, for, me for medical devices. Um, additive manufacturing or 3D printing is, uh, is another area. And also, I see that a lot of the uh, drug companies uh, are getting into the medical devices uh, by creating a drug device combinations. Essentially, pharma companies are producing devices to deliver their drugs. So um, these are the various areas that I see uh, are changing and growing. Um, and you ask also, how do you prepare for uh, these things? Well, um, one of the ways to prepare is uh, proper training of your staff. Uh, your, people who do risk management should be properly trained in, in uh, the techniques and, and have knowledge of ISO 14971. And in my opinion, adjacent disciplines such as uh, toxicology, sterilization, packaging, these other areas should also be trained in risk management. Um, another thing that companies can do to prepare is to do good market surveillance of issues related to their products and comparable products, uh, especially uh, when they are pioneering uh, new areas, maybe new indications or uh, new types of devices. The sources that they could use are sort of the public information. There, there's a lot of um, MDR, which is medical device reporting in the US or vigilance in Europe. There is a MOD database uh, in the U.S. Uh, lots of information is available publicly that I think companies should use to prepare. And um, lastly, what I would suggest is uh, to develop the imagination of their analysts. Um, you know, we are not just required to manage the risks of, uh, that are known, but also foreseeable uh, hazards of a device. These are things that um, maybe have not happened, but we are supposed to anticipate them. And uh, um, this, this takes imagination. So we need to have uh, our um, yeah, analysts uh, be able to predict the future. There's some predictive engineering going on. And also you have to consider that the devices have to be safe both under normal and fault conditions. So um, it's not even limited to one fault. So any number of faults. It's it's a, not a really simple thing to do. So going back to your teaching, uh, are you familiar with the concept of the protege effect, which states that the best way to learn is to teach. Have you found that since you've gone into teaching that your knowledge of risk management has improved furthermore than it ever has in the past? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, you know, um, I, I learn all the time. My knowledge is expanding. That's why I wrote my second book, because... Uh, um, just, just teaching itself, you know, what happens is that uh, my students ask me questions and these questions sometimes point to areas of knowledge that is not well developed. So, uh, yeah, by teaching, I'm learning uh, and, and my knowledge is growing all the time. Um, definitely, I, I can agree with what you said. So as a teacher, uh, being that some of my audience here are students, what advice would you offer to students to perhaps make their learnings more effective or even so to maybe utilize their time at university, college or which, whichever institution that they're at? Yeah, um, well, take a course in medical device risk management if it's available to you. Um, unfortunately, not many universities have offerings. Uh, I mean, I teach in a few uh, that do offer these uh, courses on risk management, but uh, there are not many available. 
if you can't find a course in your own university, then see if you can take a course uh, publicly. Uh, I also teach public courses. So there, so get some education. And um, at a minimum, I would say the students should uh, just understand the fundamentals of risk management for medical devices and uh, learn the language. Um, risk management, like any other area, has its own jargon, its own language. And um, although it may seem simple, uh, you know, just a handful of vocabulary and words and terms, and that's it. But in practice, it's probably the most important thing because I find that even professionals uh, that uh, are in the field, they get confused, they make mistakes in the use of the language. And then what happens is that when they think they are communicating, they're not. And uh, the result of that could be uh, e either like light level of uh, adverse consequences, like uh, wasting time because you just thought you communicated with your, your colleague, but they actually didn't understand you at all. So that wasted time. Or it could be as bad as missing hazards and releasing products that are unsafe and causing great harm to people. Um, so uh, understanding the language and the risk management and the fundamentals, I say it's a good first step for university students to, to take. Um, or people, even professionals, that just want to get into the area of risk management um, for them to. Question I have for you. How do you describe to your family and friends what you do for a living? Because it's a challenge I face myself. Yes. Um, uh, I, uh, let's just simplify it. I say I teach um, uh, risk management in biomedical engineering. Um, because the courses that I teach in universities are in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. And um, so if people typically understand what biomedical engineering means. And then I just touch on uh, safety of medical devices. Uh, one thing that uh, uh, funny question, sometimes people ask me, which medical device? Uh, well, <laughs> my answer is then all medical devices, because risk management is not limited to one medical devices. It's all medical devices. Uh, um, so that's uh, that's how I answer the question. What I do. So going back to the process of writing a book, how did you come up with the idea that you know it's about time that you write a book? And number two is what does that process look like? How exactly did you go about writing every day and getting it published? How does that process work? Yeah, uh, uh, how this happened for me was uh, when I started teaching. Um, at the, for the first time in the university, which was in, in the Netherlands, uh, the university uh, professors were asking me, uh, uh, were designing the course, can you recommend a textbook? So I said, let me look around. And I looked, I looked everywhere. I could not find uh, any books on medical device risk management. So then I asked some of my other colleagues, I said, could you please look and see if you can't find something? They looked and nobody was able to find a book. So I, I said to the university that, uh, I'm sorry, there is no, there is no book available. Um, so students just could get my course notes. That's all I had. Then the uh, advising professor for the course said, um, would you mind writing a book? I thought, oh, that's not a bad idea. Uh, I had taught a lot of uh, courses informally, uh, well, and formally, uh, and I had my course notes. So I thought, well, maybe I can just assemble my course notes and write a book. But writing a book is is a really painful thing if you haven't done it. Um, because it's not just putting your notes together. Because right? if you do that, that's not a good book. It would, it would be hard to read. What you need to do is to um, 
guide the mind of the reader in a way that the knowledge that you're imparting can make sense and be coherent. Uh, when you're uh, like my books are in the order of like four to five hundred pages long. So when you write something that long, then it has to be coherent. Things that you say in the early chapters and the middle chapters and end chapters, they all need to mesh well together. And then another thing is the order in which you present the information. You know, you, it ha you have to build up on it. It's kind of like building a house. You have to start from the foundation, gradually build things up. There's an there's a order you have to go through. Um, and then on top of that, um, this is a dry subject. I wanted to make my book interesting and easy to read. So uh, I, uh, I try to include a bit of humor, uh, examples to make it uh, interesting and fun to read. Um, and then lastly, the, the thing that I wanted to make sure was I wanted to make sure it's readable. So I asked a non-technical person, once a person who was not an engineer, to read my book and see are they lost or can they make sense of it? Is it so that I got some tips, uh, feedback from the non-technical person who read my book. Um, uh, and, and of course, you know, feedback from my editor and, and, and other readers. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it took me a year and a half to write my first book. Uh, and and it, it, it was it was a lot of work. And also working with publishers is not easy either. <laughs> No, I can definitely imagine, but I'm guessing your second book probably didn't take you as long as you got familiar with the process. That's right. The second book was was easier uh, uh, because not only now I knew how to write a book because this, the first one was the first book I'd ever written, so that was that was hard. The second one was easier, and also it became easier with my publisher because uh, when I wrote my first book, my publisher I was a nobody, right? To so my publisher, they just uh, um, they they didn't give me a lot of um, um, conveniences, let's call it. Uh, so, uh, and, but in, in the second book, by by this time, because my first book became a bestseller for them, then they were very kind to me. They would uh, give me all kinds of concessions. You know, their best editor, the best project manager. You know, as many pages as I wanted, full color, anything. Basically, anything I wanted, they would give me. So, in, in the second book was a, a lot easier. Right? In, in the first book, they were a little more restrictive. And um, yeah, and, and fortunately, my second book is even doing better than the first book. So it's uh, I get a lot of positive feedback from around the world uh, that people really like it. So I'm happy about that. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. What one piece of advice would you be leaving the listeners with? Don't be afraid of risk management because you know if you have if you're looking at it from the outside, it seems kind of ambiguous and maybe even a little scary, like how do I even do this? What does it mean? Um, it's it's doable. Um, uh, you know, uh, it just takes reasonableness. Uh, you need to learn the fundamentals, of course, and the fundamentals are available you know, in, in courses or in my book. But uh, once you get into it, um, you find that applying reasonableness to your thoughts um, and critical thinking is another one. You know, I, I devoted, by the way, a whole chapter, chapter 40 of my book is about critical thinking. Uh, apply critical thinking to your work. And this is good for risk management as well as any other kind of engineering work. Um, and you'll be successful. Thank you for listening to episode 48 of the MedTech podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. 
If you wish to learn more about Bijan, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or visit his company website, the links of which are provided in the description. If there are any particular topics or guests you'd like for me to have on the show in the future, then feel free to reach out.